God continues to call us to a time of fellowship through the words of the prophet Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, The Lord here has told us that the thoughts of the Lord are higher than our thoughts. God's Word goes out like the rain and snow from heaven. It sprouts the seeds. It nourishes the plants. It gives us food. So when we hear God's Word, we need to allow it to accomplish God's purposes for which it was sent. This morning, as we hear the Word of God preached, let the water of the Word, the seeds that have been planted, sprout in your life to the full glory of God. Let me invite you to turn to your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. We're going to continue what we began last week in this passage, and we will not finish this text. We're going to look at 17 and 18 next week, um, and then finally that will lead us to chapter 4 and the content there. Um, Malachi is, this is the the, the sixth installment, the the sixth exhortation that God gave his people through Malachi um, at a time when God's people were struggling, struggling in their faith, struggling in their love, struggling in their and their trust in God. And so that has predictable consequences when you and I go down that path. And Malachi addresses each one of those predictable consequences. The compromised worship, compromised pulpit, compromised community, compromise our view of, of, of God, being earthbound, worldly. And uh, this one this morning is, is uh, the, the last one uh, and perhaps the, the most... Uh, the one that flows from the previous uh, clearly, but it's the the uh, um, icing on the cake in a negative way. How's that? And that's um, questioning God's character. So um, we're on there's, uh, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's holy word. Hear now the word of our king. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but also those who test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. 
And a book of remembrance was written beforehand for those who fear the Lord and esteem His name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as, as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve. As far as the reading of God's Word, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the privilege that you, is ours as Your covenant people to have a light that um, illumines our path and enables us, O Lord, to walk in this very dark world. But Lord, we know this light does not illumine miles away. It illumines just right where we're stepping. So we're called to live by faith um, as we follow You, as You lead us. God, we pray You bless this time. That You indeed would lead us, that You would speak, and that we, Your people, would listen. And that, Lord, You would do a work of grace. Holy Spirit, You would open our eyes and enable us, O oh God, to be responsive to Your Word, to feast upon it, and to genuinely be built up, encouraged, um, strengthened, and matured in our faith in You. Lord, we entrust this time to You towards that end, to Your glory and praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The life of Christ in the, in the Gospels is broken up into, or actually four, but three primary in terms of ministry, three sections. You've got the year of obscurity, which we have only five events recorded for us in the book of John. And then you have the year of popularity, which is his ministry in Galilee. And then you've got the year of, of, of opposition, which is Galilee on down to Perea, then back into Palestine. Well, in that year of opposite or year of uh, popularity, Jesus Christ became sort of a um, a celebrity. Everywhere he went, large crowds follow. He he spoke to to, to the masses. Um, anytime you read in the Gospels of large crowds, you know crowds trying to break in to see Jesus, you're in his year of popularity. You're in his second year of ministry, and uh, um, so he was this celebrity. All throughout Galilee, which is the northern part of Palestine. A celebrity almost in every place he went, except in one city. And that city was Nazareth. Listen to Mark chapter 6. He went up from there. And he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listen, and, and many listeners were astonished. The word for astonished does not mean in awe. This particular Greek word speaks of verbal attack and striking out in fear. The people listening to him were upset. They were angry. They were striking out in fear, saying, "Where did this man get these things? And what and what is this wisdom given to him? And in such miracles as these performed by his hands." Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Interesting. Jesus Christ, throughout all of Galilee at this time, was being heralded as an incredible being. Many, or many, uh, some viewed him as God, the disciples, at times, not always, but at times, had that, that rare glimpse and realized this is. This is much more than a man. This is God Himself. Many followed Him because of the miracles He did. He was a miracle max, in essence. We know that from God's Word. Um, but He comes to Nazareth, and brothers and sisters, what is the deal with this group? 
Why do they, why are they angered at what Jesus is, is doing? Why do they get so upset by the reputation that Jesus held? He's a miracle worker. He's, he's this great teacher. He tells us things we've never known. Why did they get upset at him? What was their problem? You know, the, if you read on, the text says a prophet's not honored his own home. They lacked respect. I mean, this is that little boy that we saw play. This is, those are his sisters. He's nothing big. He's nothing special. He's just Jesus. And because of that, we read in chapter, uh, in verse five, he could do no miracle there. It's not that his miracles were tied to their, um, endorsement of him. It's that God has tied his growth and grace to faith, to reliance to following God in a dark land when the path is, is only illumined for each footstep, yet willingly, joyfully, zealously following Him. Brothers and sisters, the people of God's problem in Nazareth with regards to Jesus is quite uh, frankly, they were being critical of Christ. They looked down upon Him. Their problem was is they assumed Jesus to be this and they looked down at Him as a result. And that's exactly what God's people are doing with God in the time of Malachi. We've already seen this last week. They were looking down upon God. Of all the, of the six things, the, the climax of the things that they were doing because they'd lost their heart for God was that they now were being critical of God. Rather than viewing God and worshiping God and trusting God to lead them, they, were, they, they had taken God, brought Him down to their level, to a manageable place where they could then criticize Him and um, um, you know, dictate what God should and should not do. And when He didn't do it, they could criticize Him more. And the result is they struggled in their faith. Just like in Mark 6.5, He did little spiritual growth occurred in their lives at this time. We picked it up, we saw this last week, we picked it up looking at the soil from whence this sinful attitude arises. And we saw verse 13. Let me just give you a quick running start here. Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me. Remember that word simply means that they, they put themselves over God and over His work. And this is part and parcel of the fall. That's how the fall occurred. God's people took God, took His authority, took His word and subjugated to their own wisdom and their own will. And they said, hey, this is what's right and wrong. And God, God seems to violate that. Therefore, God's wrong. And that's exactly what they did. That's the soil. But brothers and sisters, what makes the soil so difficult if you have your Bible open, verse 13b, yet you say, what have we, what have we spoken against thee? What are, we, what are you talking about, God? We're not doing that. And that's what makes this sin so uh, pernicious. All of these sins so pernicious. It's because these sins so frequently are evidenced in our lives and we don't even see it. We don't even know it. I can sure, as sure as I'm standing here today, I'm certain that I'm a person who does this. It's part and parcel of every sin it's part and parcel of the fall to be critical, to, to, to subjugate God to our reasoning, to our estimation, and to be critical of God. And if you think you're not, brothers and sisters, you're falling exactly to exa uh, where God's people were here. What are you talking about, God? We're not criticizing you. We love you. But we don't like that command about divorce and marriage. We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like what you've been doing. So that's the soil. And that led to the accusation. So now we call the arrogant blessed. 
Three things. The arrogant are blessed. Doers of wickedness are built up. And those who test God escape. In essence, each one of those involve a comparison between God's treatment of the wicked and God's treatment of His people. When it comes to the wicked, why? They're blessed, built up. Their sin is ignored. When it comes to God's people, the implication is they are cursed. We are broken. We're not built up. And our minor sins are paid back double. That's the kind of God we serve. He's unkind. He's uncaring. He doesn't care. He cares more about the wicked than He does His own people. So the the soil is this critical attitude towards God. That's the result of a lot of sin in our lives. Well, that's the source of a lot of sin. In this particular case, it manifests itself in their questioning the care, the love, the devotion of God towards His people. And that's important that you get that. They're questioning the devotion of God, the care of God towards His people because it's going to come out next week and in chapter 4. That's what they were questioning. Does God really care for His people? Is it really a good thing to be called by God's name? Because if you look at the wicked, they're doing pretty good. Psalm 73. All right, that then led us to the, to the restorative cure. What do you do, brothers and sisters, if, this, if you hear in this, you go, boy, you, you know what? That's not good, number one. Number two, that is me. I have whatever, for whatever reason, I've got this critical spirit about God. And I know that because when bad things happen to me, the first thing I do is I blame God. And I'm tired of it. I don't want to do that. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking to me right, uh, right now. How do you, what's the cure to being a Christian who your, 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 your gut reaction to difficulties in life is to say, God, why? What is your problem? Why must you pick on me more? What's the solution to that? What, what's the redemptive cure? Well, that's verse 16. And we began last week looking at the first one. Then those who fear the Lord. Okay, so amongst those in verses 13 through 15, there were a group of those people who heard the prophet's message, that it resonated in their hearts, and they were convicted. And so they responded with reverence and praise. And thus, there, there's a group who actually responded. As I said last week, throughout Malachi, we don't see the response of these sermons. We just know that they were given. Well, here God gives us a glimpse into a group of people who were, re- who were responsive to what they heard. And that response was one of reverence and awe. Those, those who revered and um, uh, were in awe of God, would you notice, they spoke to one another. You could take that little phrase out and wouldn't change a whole lot of what we understand what happened at this time. So therefore, the inclusion of that in this passage must be significant. And what is the significance? Well, the significance is, brothers and sisters, verse 16 tells us, this is why those who feared the Lord feared the Lord. This is what led them to respond, to be so responsive to the message preached. God's word was proclaimed to the entire group, but those people in the body who, who, who sought out fellowship, who didn't just simply hear it, go home and mull upon it by themselves, but those who heard it and got together and said, wait a second, I don't know if that's right. I think God's been mean to us. What do you all think? And the more they talked, the more people who talked out of reverence for God, the more they brought, were brought to the place of reverence, fear, service. The first one was his fellowship. Fellowship. And so in Scripture, brothers and sisters, we are directed in Scripture to seek out fellowship. Right? Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. What's God's cure? Encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of, of sin. Family of God, we concluded last week, and we conclude even before last week, that Christianity is a team sport. All right? It is a team sport. God is always at work up through and by and with His people in the lives of, of each other. Um, the last point, the accusation, right? What, what we just saw, um, as God's people um, accuse God, what is it that they failed to recognize? Same thing as, 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 as uh, Amasaph. What did they fail? They failed to see the end game. They failed to see God's perspective on life. They had theirs because they exalted themselves over God's word. But as they fellowshiped together, brothers and sisters, they reminded each other of God's word. And brothers and sisters, when you do that, you now start to hear and behold the end, God's end game. I'm using chess language here. In chess, the most important part of a chess match is the end game. Three phases. The opening, the middle game, and the end game. Okay, The end game is what everything you do in that game is leading towards. The end game in God's kingdom is you and I walking in the new heavens and the new earth with Him. And everything going on before, every movement of God's providence is designed for us to be walking with God in that day. And it's through fellowship, talking about God's Word, biblical fellowship, not, not socializing. There's nothing wrong with socializing with God. But brothers, if that's all we ever do, we're not fellowshipping. Fellowshipping is where we go and we invest in each other around God's Word. We share our commonness. And the only thing we have in common with everybody at all times in Christ, everybody in Christ at all times, in all places, in all places, at all times, is Christ. You can't say, well, we have this in, in common. Well, brothers and sisters, people 2,000 years probably didn't share the same thing that you and I do. But they did share Christ. The one thing we have in common with all people, all places, all times is Christ. And that is the focus and source of our fellowship. If you don't believe it from Hebrews 3, I've got a book here in, in my hands. It has 1,350 1, odd pages in it. And the second page, this is a manual on life. This is the basis of, that statement is the basis of Nuthetic Counseling. God made man and he gave us his word to help us understand how man works. And the second page of this manual on life says these words, it is not good for man to be alone. So if you think, man, I'm good at isolation. I'm fine. I don't need the body of Jesus Christ. You are falling right back into what the God's people in his day did, and that is they're blind. They don't even realize the sin. I don't know. I don't need a God. You're wrong. I don't need the body of Jesus Christ. I don't need to stay in the afternoons for fellowship. I don't need to be in discipleship. I don't need to be in any involvement with God's people other than coming one day a week, worshiping and going home, putting my time in, checking off and going home. Brothers and sisters, you do. You do. Whether you realize it or not, we need fellowship. And so that was the, the, the first, um, um, restorative cure that God uh, that we recognize here that enabled God's people to respond the way that they did. Now that leads us to the second. I'm going to give you one more verse, brothers, on the last point, and that is Proverbs 14, uh, 13. Realize, just because you show up in fellowship gatherings, that doesn't mean that you're fellowshipping. 
Proverbs 14, 13 is a memory verse. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain and the, and the end of joy may be grief. Brothers and sisters, you can be in a place where you are engaging in the conversation, laughing as people go along, but your heart could be in great, deep, uh, great grief. And that happens. You and I both have done that. We've done that. And that tells us it behooves us not simply to show up, but to engage, to share. I'm struggling. This is my difficulties. Or I don't understand this. Why is God doing this? God seems mean to me. Brothers and sisters, we need that fellowship. But that's what God's people clearly did here. Secondly, would you notice, the second thing that led these people to reverencing God as they did, the knowledge of God's acceptance of us. Notice with me verse 16b. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before them. Book of remembrance. This is anthropomorphic language. There are a couple commentaries I have said that because a book is written is referenced so many times in Scripture, that's the reason they believe this is literal. And it may be. I, I would not die on this hill. I don't think this is literal. God is a not a, God is a, is an incorporeal being, and I find it hard to think that He have a physical book that He records our actions in as an incorporeal be, uh, you know incorporeal be as as a spirit. Be that as it, it may, whether it's real or whether it's it's an you know anthropomorphism, the message is the same, and the message is that, that there is a book of remembrance with God. Now let's let's break that down. The word for remembrance is the Hebrew word for zakar. Okay, zakar. Now I've defined this word in the context of uh, communion. It's a vivid word in the Hebrew. When we think of the word remember, we define that as calling to mind, and that is not this word. This word is not the Greek calling to mind. What did you do yesterday? Well, yesterday I woke up, um, I did this, I did that, I did that. That's remembering. That's not remembering this in, the, in the context of this word. This word, zakar, is vivid. It's a vivid calling to mind such that you place yourself there to remember this, you know, do this in remembrance of me is to be at the foot of the cross. It's to see the blood dripping. It's, it's to hear the groans. It's to hear, hear Christ say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's much more engaging. It's much more active. Okay, so this is a book where God is actively involved in His people's life. And what is that book of remembrance about? It's our names in that book. It's our deeds. It's who we are in that book. And thus, if you're in that book, the implication behind this is that you are have been chosen, selected by God, and thus you are the object of His love. That's the idea behind this word. The doctrine of, of election. Okay? Election is not just simply God selected blindly. It's God set His love on us before the foundation of the world, chose us, and thus, cho and thus delivered us. That's what this idea is. In fact, um, let, me, let me show that to you from Esther chapter 2. Okay, you may recall Mordecai, how he saved King Ahasuerus' life. Let me read about it. Esther 2.21 In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon... And Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King 
Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Queen Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. That's a book of remembrance. So in that day, for us, and even in the New Testament, there's not a book of remembrance, really. We don't really have that language. But at this time, in this era, a book of remembrance was this, was this chronicle where not every action of every citizen was written in that chronicle. Only those whom the king chose. So the king would choose to record certain acts because it stuck out to him. Certain people because it stuck out to him. Okay, so in that day, there was this book of remembrance. And that's exactly what's being referenced here. Well, now, a couple uh, years later, we read um, in Esther chapter 6 that the king couldn't sleep. And so you know what he does? He uses the earliest form of audible. You guys know what audible is? It's that app you can listen, right? The king uses, he, he, he plugs on his, his little iPhone, presses audible, and they, in what, what book does he have read? The King's Chronicles. So notice. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the Chronicles, the book of remembrance. And they were read before the king. That's audible. Okay? It was a physical person. Back in the old days, that's how they used to do it. Um, I know young people don't understand that today, but that actually is what happened. They used to read to And it was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? In other words, it caught his eye. That's a book of remembrance. It was written for the sole purpose so that we can remember who these people are and what they did. Brothers and sisters, God has a book of remembrance, but it comes short of glorifying us. It's not, it's not a book that, that magnifies us. It's a book where God records those whom he loves, whom he has received, whom he has, whom he cares about, whom he has chosen. Right? You did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. It's that book. It's that book where it's, 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 it would be one in the same with the Lamb's book of life and many other such books referenced in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's that book that's in play in, in Psalm 56, 8. Listen to David's words. Thou hast taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? David is referencing a fact that God in glory, metaphor, uh, metaphorically, I believe, he records his people. And because he records his people, he loves his people, he cares about the smallest things in our lives like tears. Every book, or every book, every tear that you cry, every tear, God records. Isn't that what you do as a parent? You know, you may not report, record the tears, but you got baby books. You've got, you know, all kinds of things. I've got a file. I don't have a baby. But we have baby books. Jan did those. I have a file called called children's sayings. And I just, I every time I'd hear something odd by my kids. Not every time. I forgot at times. But I would record these sayings. It's still fun to pull them up and go. Leanne said that. You know, uh, what in the world? You know. But they're 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 all fun things. They're 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 things that delight when I read them. They give me a warm feeling in my heart because. I love my kids, and it just, I just love hearing the things, the crazy things that they said. 
since you guys really don't, many of you don't know them, I'll, I'll give you one of them from Paul. We're going down to go shear sheep with the, the Flinchams. Watch them. And David and Paul, little guys in the car, and, and we're driving down. There's this massive wreck with a, 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 you know, ambulances. And, and David says, Dad, I know what happened. I said, what? He said, a bank robber robbed the bank, and he got out, and he ran those guys off the road, and he kept on going. And I said, that's possible. And then, Dave, and then Paul goes, that is so stupid. I went, really, Paul? What do you think happened? I think a Tyrannosaurus Rex came and bit the car. Guys, that's recorded. I mean, I find that to be so, I will be thinking about that. For, I, I mean, I can re remember little Paul and, and him saying that. It just fills my heart. That's what's going on in Psalms 56. It's God loving his people, cherishing their words, recording every tear that is cried. That's how much God cares for you. That's how much God loves you. Listen to the next Psalm. Psalm 86, Korah wrote these words about the, the book. The Lord shall count when He registers the people in His book. This one was born there. God, God, that book means He is not only He has not only chosen you from afar, but He's actively involved in your life. And that's the idea behind the Hebrew word remembrance. Zakar. It's a book of God's active involvement in your life where He cherishes His people and He cares about them. So much He even knows where you're born. He cares about your tears. He cares about them all. And brothers and sisters, it's, it's, that's what this book is. I've got, I've got this in your notes. A book of remembrance in the ancient world therefore denoted two important concepts. Divine election and so divine recognition and care. Divine involvement. Divine love. Divine care. Ian Duguid wrote these words. The importance of this heavenly record is that it demonstrates clearly this, that serving the Lord was certainly not useless. Remember, what, what was their charge? God doesn't care. He didn't care about us. He's not involved in our lives. And that God comes and through fellowship, He reminds His people He's intimately involved in their lives. He does care. As the, um, the Lord was, was attentive to what was happening on earth and would in due time act on behalf of those who were His. And here in brothers and sisters, we see that this is the transforming grace of the Gospel. Working out right here in verse 16. What is it that led these people to reverence God? It was the knowledge of God's love, care, and acceptance of them. Find a Christian who struggles with regards to that, who feels insecure with regards to God's love of them, and I'll show you a Christian who struggles in your walk. You show me a Christian Maybe the very same one who comes to an understanding that, that it's a that brothers. That's why, that's why you call it amazing grace. This amazing, unbelievable grace that God could love me even in my sin. If they can accept that by faith, I'll show you a Christian who's zealous for the Lord. In the Bible, it's always a correlation between how much you accept and understand the love and the grace and the acceptance of God always leads to vigor and excitement and zeal and um, trust in God. You see that in Romans. This is an illustration, brothers and sisters. Let me illustrate what I just shared with you. Paul in Romans 12, you know that Romans has two sections as most of the Pauline epistles do. Doctrinal application. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. And the orthoprax section is, I, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. That's the call. 
Give yourself to God. But on what basis? Therefore, I urge you, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore points us back to the previous 11 chapters. And we don't have time to look at all of the entire flow of, those book, of that book. It's phenomenal. But I want to highlight just three points. Three points that are germane and relevant to, to what we're seeing here. The first one is from Romans 3, 23-24. You know Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but I referenced this a couple weeks back, but 24 is a participle phrase modifying 23. And so if you were to read that verse accurately, it would be as you read it now. For all being justified, all being saved, have sinned. The first thing we learn from Romans 3, 23-24, as we think of this call to give ourselves unto the Lord, is that we're sinners. Saved people struggle with sin. Save people sin against God. So in other words, we often think, man, if I was saved, I wouldn't sin like this. If I was saved, I wouldn't be struggling like this. If I was saved, I wouldn't have these thoughts. You're completely wrong. If you were saved, you, you would have those thoughts and not struggle. I'm sorry, if you weren't saved. If you weren't saved, you'd have those thoughts in you, but you wouldn't struggle. Saved people are sinners. They have the same thoughts. Oftentimes the same thoughts as non-believers. But the difference is they struggle. Oh, my thoughts, oh Lord, my thoughts, how horrible am I, are, my, are my thoughts. Okay, that is a picture of a believer. Okay, secondly, notice Romans 5, 8 through 10. I'm selecting these, obviously. God demonstrates his own love towards us that we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, you know when Jesus Christ died for you, he died for you when you were unsavable. When you were undesirable, when you were ugly, wretched horrible. That's when he died for you. That's when he, he set his love upon you when you were wretched. Not when you were beautiful. He, he died for wretches. Then he says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. So this is another incredible truth that Paul taught his people. That is not only do we sin, but brothers and sisters, our current sin in Christ could never stop God from loving us. I mean, if he loved you when you had given yourself to sin, when you were just gone, lost in your sin, how much more that you're his child will he continue to love you and care for you regardless of your sin? Do you believe that? It's Romans 5. And then it climaxes. This is the nature of God's love for us. It's so great and so grand. Romans 8. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, if he's accepted us, Who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not also with him freely give us all things? It's this glorious problem. That's the book of remembrance. Paul is drawing to mind the glorious love of God. And notice where it leads him. Verse, we, I'll keep going. Who then will, will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Brothers and sisters, the fact that he's asking who can bring a charge tells us you're a sinner, that you struggle with sin. Who's going to charge you? Satan? Guilty, God. No, I died for that man. I died for that one. I died for that person. Who can bring a charge against us in our sin, in our weakness? Jesus Christ is, is he who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, it was based on this glorious acceptance of us by God. 
that, that, those, those incredible truths, and, and there's many more of them in, in Romans 1 through 11, that Paul said, I urge you therefore, based on those mercies, to present your body. Do you understand passion, spiritual service, vigilance, devotion, holiness? It's generated in Scripture, not by you and me willing to be holy. It's generated as you and I gaze upon the grace, the glorious grace, the love, the compassions, the book of remembrance. The more that you and I understand what that book is, which is the gospel, the more you and I will fear the Lord. And that's exactly what God's people do or did in Malachi's day. Why did they respond? What's the restorative cure? You find yourself critical of God. Number one, get in fellowship. Seek out fellowship diligently. It's a command. Secondly, you know that the manual says it's not good for us to be isolated. It's a command. So with that, seek it out into the context of that fellowship. Take what you're learning in God's Word and talk to one another about it. And encourage each other by it. And share your doubts. Don't be the one who in the context of joy is sorrowful. Be the one who in the context of joy says, guys, I'm not filled with joy. I'm struggling in my walk. I'm not what you all are being where I am. I am where I am. Please help me. Encourage me. Pray for me. Whatever it may be. And then in that context, brothers and sisters, in the context of fellowship, which is all around Christ, because that's our commonness, what's the conversation? It's what Christ has done. What has he done? Wow. That's the book of remembrance. But it didn't end there. Okay? It goes one more step. There's a progression of fellowship. Leads to, to talking about Christ's cross work. You know what that does? It leads to a, a greater understanding, a greater apprehension of God. And that's the third point. Did you notice 616C? They cultivated the habit of marveling at God's person. Notice 16. And those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. The last expression is, helps us. It's esteem His name. Let's define those terms and you'll understand this point. The word for esteem. It's the primary word in the Bible for thinking. Okay, Those who think. But the word thinking can be used, according to the theological word book, six different ways. Because of this, the idea behind what this word is, it's used in six different ways in Scripture, in the Old Testament. And the way that it's used here, says the theological word book, is the word for meditation. Okay? So, theological word book says, Malachi is not talking about people just recalling to mind as they go. He's talking about deep meditation. Thinking on the character of God. Because the next word is name. And you know the word name in the Bible is not a means of identification. In the Bible, it reflects character. Psalm 124, 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What do you mean your help is in the name? Is this Hollywood? When things that happen, you just got to say God's name and things will get better? No. Your help is not in the, in the vocalization of Jesus. Ooh, everything's better. No, it's in his character. The word name means character. Our help is in the character of God. Who is your God? That's your help. Right? Notice Psalm or Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Their protection is the character of God. 
His sovereignty, His transcendency, His holiness, His almighty power, His omnipotency. By a word, He created the world. And yet, His love, His tender mercies, His kindness, the fact that He holds us in His hands. Brothers and sisters, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from that, that love. That's the name of God. Proverbs or Psalm 27, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the character of God. That's the idea. So put together, what's the third thing these people were doing? Their fellowship led to talking about the crosswork of Jesus Christ. And that crosswork of Jesus Christ led those people to muse, to meditate, to think long on the, on the character of God. And that would involve two things. Who He is and what He does. Meditation. Thomas Watson, I, I was reading this past week and just in God's providence prior to getting to this sermon prep, I was reading a book on, on Thomas Watson and he was talking all about meditation. So I got a lot of quotes here. Meditation is the bellows of the affection. The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Brothers and sisters, you know the objective of a quiet time it's not to learn facts. It's to gaze upon, to muse upon, to, to delight yourself in the character of God. His, who He is, what He's done, His crosswork, His providence, all of that stuff. That's what we're doing when we meditate. So we're called to it in Scripture. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from out, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There's a lot of verses. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 at the end. In his law, he meditates day and night. The primary word for meditation in Scripture, there's two of them in Hebrew. Siah, both of them are onomatopoetic words. Siah. It sounds like tss, 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 tss. When you meditate in the Old Testament, you did it out loud. So if you had a group of people meditating, if you were from close up, you'd hear a lot of whispers. You kept hearing siah. That word means it refers to rehearse. It's translated rehearse, repeat, go over a matter in one's mind. But they always did it verbally. God is glorious. God is incredible. God is this. God is that. Wow. And they all did it at the same time. The second word is haga. And haga is also a monopoetic word. It was used to translate the idea of a low, slow sound, the moaning of a dove, the growling of a lion. Because from a distance, if you heard a group of people meditating, it sounded from a distance like, right? This low moaning. That's haga. And that's the same word. It carries both those words have one thing in common, and that is the um, repetitive thought. It's taking. The word of the what some a facet of God and looking at it as if as if it were a diamond from so many different redemptive and characteristic angles, who God is. Let me give you an example. Well, let me give you a quote from Thomas Watson. In meditation, there must be uh, a staying of the thoughts upon the object. A man who rides quickly through a town or village, he minds nothing. But an artist who is looking on a curious piece views the whole porch. Uh, portraiture of it. He observes the symmetry, the proportions. He minds every shadow and color. There is as much difference between a truth remembered and a truth meditated on as between a cordial in a glass and a cordial drunk down. So the idea is we're called to be the artists. We take a facet of God's character. I'm going to give you one. 
kindness. Let's just meditate on God's kindness. To meditate on God's kindness, you do these things when it comes to God's attribute of kindness. You, you, would, you would ask these. You meditate and answer these questions. How does God's kindness relate to his justice? Meditate on that. How does God's kindness relate to his sovereignty? How do we understand God's kindness when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ? How do we understand God's kindness when it comes to hell? Those are just four. You could do 50. Understand God's kindness in light of his mercy. Kindness in light of his love. Kindness in light of his omnipresence. Kindness. What, what, is, what is kindness? First, let's define it. Then secondly, what he does. You take God's kindness and apply it to what he does. What does God's kindness mean when I am frightened? How does God's kindness affect, affect what he does in my life when I'm frightened? How about what does God's kindness do when I'm sinning? How does God's kindness relate to my sin? How ought God's kindness to bear upon me when I'm rightly angry with another person? That's just three. I could give you, we could think of a whole lot more. How does God's kindness, this past week, in all honesty, I was meditating, not on God's kindness, but I was meditating on God's blessing, on the gifts he gives us. And I thought, I want to first meditate on the, the fact that God gives us gifts through the lens of the fact that he's infinite. I like taking infinite, eternal, and changeable. I meditate. Anything I think of, I like to go through there first. First thing I went was he is, is the fact that he's infinite. The word infinite means boundless. You know what it means that God's blessing is boundless? That means, like the rays of the sun, if you enjoy God's blessing, it doesn't diminish God's blessing in my life. You can't exhaust God's grace. He can give all of His grace, all of it to you, and I can receive just as much because it's infinite. Man, I sat there meditating, and I just, it led me to praise. And I spent... How much time just, God, you are the, um, the, the, a fount who can never be exhausted, right? Ephesians 3, and then I start thinking of passages that support that. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that he gives us according to his grace or, or according to his power. In other words, in agreement with the, with the if, if a wealthy man gave you out of his wealth, he'd give you a penny. If he gave you according to his wealth, he'd give you it all. If God gives you according to his grace, he gives you all of it. All of it. Wow. Brothers and sisters, what made the difference in the people of God's life in Malachi's day? They meditated upon God. That's something we don't do today. But that's what they did. That's something I'd encourage you to do. In your quiet times, read the word of God and meditate. Meditate. Go to God in prayer meditate. Right? Get together with God's people in fellowship. What is it that made the difference? Why? What, what shook these people out of their critical arrogance towards God? Three things. They fellowshiped. They sought it out. They weren't content to simply go home. They got together with God's people and talked about what they heard. Secondly, that led them to this glorious appreciation of the book of remembrance. The fact that we are in God's heart, that He stores up our, He records our tears. He records our acts because He loves us. We're the object of God's love and we'll never be separated from it. You are the object of God's love. He'll never let you go, no matter how much you say. How much sin have you committed this past week? How much do you remember? 
If you're honest, you'd say, I remember a little bit. What I sinned this past week was, was oodles, a legion. Well, God forgave them all. That's the grace of God. And then you meditate. You take God's character and you ask, what does that character mean with regards to the fact he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable? And then I start applying it to the rest of his attributes. What does this mean with regards to he's good, or he's this, or he's that, or he's jealous, or he's, he's, he's angry? I mean, what, what does it mean in these contexts? God's kindness, and he's an angry God, the, the psalm says. How do we relate his kindness to his anger? Well, because of Jesus Christ, we'll only receive his kindness. His anger was vented on Christ. That, wow! But the non-believer, they'll only get God's anger. Wow! Amazing, just as God's kind. Oh man, brothers and sisters, meditate. And as you and I do that, you and I, hopefully our heart, once again, get restoked. And, we, and the, what was once believed and professed and zealously sought after, I'm thinking of Second Timothy, gets rekindled. Our faith is rekindled. Paul told Timothy, rekindle your faith. God gets rekindled as we nourish it from the fires of God. Now, don't misunderstand. Meditation doesn't do it. That's not the secret. Okay, I'm going to give you one more quote and I'll be done. Charles Bridges. Okay, it's not just that don't walk away going, I just got to do these three things and that'll be it. No, you've missed it. If you, if you walk away with duty, you've missed it. Listen to this last quote. It is asked, what will most effectively turn my eyes from vanity? Not the seclusion of, of a contemplative retirement. That's meditation. Not meditation. Not the relinquishment of a lawful connection with the world, right? Not leaving the world in the world, but not a, a, of it. It is rather the transcendent beauty of Jesus unveiled to our eyes and fixing hearts. The whole point of meditation is to direct you to gaze and muse upon God. So don't think it's, I meditated, I read the word, I attended the fellowship gathering, therefore, checked all those boxes, I should be zealous for God, but I'm not, it doesn't work. Brothers and sisters, if those don't force you to gaze upon Christ, you're not fellowshipping, you're not meditating, not I'm basking a lot of the gospel. All of it is a direction to use, to fellowship, to worship, to enjoy God. That's the objective of our sermon, of worship, of your quiet time. Adore, exalt, glorify, and enjoy. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for your word. And though we are very far in this passage, nevertheless, Lord, what an incredible passage filled with so much. But I pray that you would give us grace to be responsive, to hear this, young and old. That, Lord, we would be a people who would not leave here as more religious, and thus twice the son of hell, Matthew 23. But, Lord, we would leave here hungering for Christ, hungering to, to gaze upon your perfections, the fact that you're kind and lowly. The fact that you're sovereign and great. The fact that you're awesome. God, give us the grace to be a people, a congregation who corporately and individually enjoys you, exalts you, gazes and muses upon you, and thus finds our all in all in not religious activity, but you. 
the substance of religion. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's go.